0: But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish protocol or the Northern Irish protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss
1: being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels.
2: And I'm Colm Mungoin, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London.
1: This week, the horrendous loss of life on the English Channel has brought simmering tensions between France and Britain to a head and led to a bout of mutual recrimination over who's responsible.
2: We look at the migrant issue at Calais through a Brexit lens with a view from the European Council on Foreign Relations and assess the prospects for an entente cordiale which looks unlikely any time soon.
1: We'll also assess the history of the camps, the jungles and the risk-taking around the Port of Calais and why the numbers there at the moment are by no means at their highest.
2: And same as it ever was, another week of Northern Ireland Protocol talks comes and goes with no breakthrough and yet another threat by Lord Frost to trigger Article 16. But first, Tony, you referred to Calais there in the intro for anyone who wasn't listening to or watching your reports during the week. That's where you were yesterday for a long day looking at the aftermath of the tragedy.
1: That's right, Colm. On Wednesday afternoon, French fishermen discovered bodies uh, in the water in the channel and uh, an an overturned inflatable boat that was barely inflated at that point. And in all, 27 people had drowned. Uh, So that was 17 men, 7 women and 3 adolescents. Among the women, there was a pregnant woman and one of the adolescents was was a female, a teenage girl. And this was the biggest loss of life on the channel since 2014. And it came really uh, at the peak of ongoing tensions between London and Paris over who's responsible for managing migrants coming into Calais and then trying to get across the channel to the UK. It's been an increasingly personalized and bitter exchange between both sides. And then, of course, when the tragedy happened, there was, I suppose, a hiatus when everyone expressed shock and sadness at the tragedy, but that quickly dissolved into more recrimination uh, as to whose responsibility this is. And there had been an invitation to Priti Patel, the UK Home Secretary, to a meeting of EU interior ministers in Calais on Sunday. And then on Thursday night, Boris Johnson, published a letter to Emmanuel Macron on Twitter, in fact, uh, calling for all sorts of things, and the French took serious umbrage at the tone and content of the letter, which we can get into, uh, and Priti Patel was then promptly disinvited from that um, that meeting on Sunday. So the truce was very short indeed, uh, and the recriminations have resumed uh, over who exactly was responsible and who is responsible for managing this it's really a decades-old crisis and situation at the port of Calais on on the French uh, coast.
2: I, I saw a written account of one of the fishermen who had found the bodies in an interview with Agence France-Presse where he said he couldn't forget the sight of the bodies in the water and he couldn't forget what had happened. But it didn't seem to have taken politicians long to forget the actual tragedy at the centre of it and for this to turn into an Anglo-French war of recrimination and it, it was triggered in part by that tweet by Boris Johnson and requests that France should take the migrants back by way of acting as a disincentive to people to cross the channel the logic being if they knew they were going to be sent back they wouldn't try to cross in the first place but the content of the letter not only did it make that request but there was also references to a conversation in June between Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron in which Boris Johnson was saying, well, I raised several of these issues with you and unfortunately this tragedy has come to pass as predicted.
1: Yeah, so that that sounds almost like Boris Johnson had warned Emmanuel Macron and the French government about this and because the tragedy happened, his warnings were somehow not heeded and therefore some measure of responsibility rested with the French government. Um, So I think that's one of the reasons why Paris was so angry at the letter. And also, they they have been making quite a sustained request uh, on the French government to have joint patrols along the coast, uh, to have shared technology and intelligence, more drones, more high tech radar. Uh, And France has been unhappy with some of these requests, partly for sovereignty grounds, over sovereignty grounds, The idea of having British police and and perhaps even soldiers on French territory um, has not gone down too well Uh, and also the fact that since the Channel Tunnel and the port of Calais itself are both effectively off limits to migrants because they've been so heavily secured over the years, the the only option for migrants coming to Calais is to take uh, boats across but there's a two or three hundred kilometer coastline where, where that those uh, embarkations are happening and the French are saying that they simply can't police every 10 or 20 meters of, of sand and, and uh, coastline. Uh, but of course, the British government are saying, well, look, if we had joint patrols and we had a much more visible presence on the coast or even just off the coast, then that might deter uh, migrants from from launching to sea. But I mean, the, this is one of these situations which is looked at from starkly different angles and it's really an intractable problem because on the one hand, the French government are saying, look, we have essentially accepted the, the British border on French territory and we have to manage migration into your country uh, and, you know, that that's a burden that you're imposing on us. And the UK saying, you know, we're we're paying you as part of that agreement. This goes back to the Lutuke agreement or treaty back in 2003, which we can talk about to, to go into the recent past here. But um, the UK arguing that, look, you're not keeping your side of the bargain. And, you know, we have to have much more robust presence uh, jointly uh, on the channel. But I think it was perhaps Boris Johnson's request for France to take in migrants that were being sent back from the UK that that bridled so much. And this, again, brings us back to Brexit, because, of course, under EU membership, the UK was part of the so-called Dublin regulation, which facilitated the returns of migrants from one member state to another. If the migrant had in question had landed in a particular member state, that's where you're supposed to start the, the asylum pro- process. Um, so if you land in Greece, that's where you're supposed to register. Uh, and you can't go asylum shopping around the EU Uh, and that was the whole objective of the so-called Dublin regulation and Britain was part of that even though it had various opt-outs from it or from some of the accompanying legislation Um, and now Britain has left uh, and the the view in France is well that was your decision and now you're looking for us to take migrants back in uh, as part of some bilateral agreement so you can see how presentationally and politically this is very difficult for for the french but it's also very difficult for the british government because you know they, they it is an extremely difficult political issue for boris johnson and the conservative party uh, 73% according to a yougov poll said that the government was handling migration badly we've had 26000 crossings this year alone uh, that's three times the number of last year but again worth pointing out that back in 2001, um, there were uh, around 37,000 crossings when people were using the Channel Tunnel and getting onto lorries and so on. So this this is a very long running uh, dispute. And Brexit, I think, has simply made it worse.
2: Well, as you say, it is a long running dispute, Tony. About a year ago, In fact, over a year ago, Nick Whitney, who is a former chief executive of the European Defence Agency, a former diplomat with the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, and he also worked for the Ministry of Defence in the UK, he now works as senior policy fellow with the European Council on Foreign Relations, and he wrote an article for them in August 2020, looking at the issues of migration across the channel and how Brexit would affect it. Let's hear from him. Nick Whitney, senior policy fellow with the European Council on Foreign Relations. Welcome to Brexit Report. Public, thanks for talking to us.
0: It's my pleasure, Colin.
2: On the 11th of August 2020, Nick, you wrote a commentary for the European Council on Foreign Relations, the gist of which would suggest that the unseemly spat we see between the UK and France this week over migration in the English Channel is neither new nor unpredictable.
0: Well, I think that's right. I mean, it has been going on since the great migration wave came into Europe in 2015. And the uh, efforts that the French have actually made to control access to the Eurostar and the Port of Calais and so on has, uh, over the last three or four years, displaced desperate migrants further down the coast to this cross-channel small boat business, which happens now. It was uh, already creating substantial political problems here in Britain a year ago. Nothing much has happened since then except it's got worse. And of course, we've now finally had uh, the substantial tragedy of a couple of days ago, which uh, is only a surprise in that it hasn't happened sooner.
2: So when you were writing over a year ago, Britain was calling at that point on France to do more to stop migrants crossing the Channel. To what degree has Brexit influenced the situation?
0: Well, it's uh, influenced it in a a wholly unhelpful way in various aspects. First, that we are no longer fully clutched into the European cooperation systems for law enforcement, which are, I think, the best way in which one can hope to pursue what everybody says is the the only available answer to this question of, of pursuing the... The smuggling gangs which evidently operate across borders it's an international business and needs to be dealt with by international police and law enforcement cooperation now that as a result of brexit we are no longer members of europol the police cooperation unit or um, eurojust the uh, judicial cooperation Folk, So there are sort of workarounds and attempts at cooperation, but that is a substantial bar on on effective cooperation against the smuggling gangs. Although we have to be realistic and say that hopefully that's going to, such action can be taken and can succeed to an extent, but it's going to be a palliative rather than a remedy. I mean, this is a problem that we're going to have with us in some shape or form. For the indefinite future and if you want to be really gloomy about it it's likely only i think to get worse as, as migratory pressures are heated up by climate change instability spreading autocracy neglect of human rights economic privation is is driving many of the people of the americas towards the the us and we're in europe facing the same from whether it's yemen or afghanistan or eritrea so a global problem which is only gonna get worse. Now, Brexit, of course, hamstrings the government politically in two two ways. One is that it can't admit that since Brexit was sold on the basis that we would take back control and take back control of our borders. And there was a distinct anti-immigrant message going on here beneath the rational arguments of Brexit. So the government can't admit that um, that was a false prospectus and that if anything, it's made it more difficult for us to, to control what's going on across the channel it's deprived the government of the ability to speak rationally to the British people about this and explain that there probably is no silver bullet to solve the problem and pointing out that other people in Europe have it far worse that we're actually protected simply by geography from the surge of people coming into um, across the Mediterranean and that we're we're lucky in that way and we have uh, fewer asylum applicants than the French or the Italians or the Germans, or, um, we should, in a sense, count our blessings if we don't like migration coming across the Channel. We might even reflect that our fertility rate in Britain has just gone down to 1.6, whereas you know, replacement rate for the population is 2.1, so actually, if... Um, If we want um, young people to come into the country and look after us in our old ages and drive our HGVs and pick our fruits and so on, this is not the ideal way to organise immigration, but it's not actually some sort of curse or blot on the landscape that people should be um, making their way to Britain. Well, the government can't say any of those things because of the Brexit line. Finally, to make matters worse, its whole political survival and chances of re-election seem to depend, at least in its own mind, on keeping the fires of... Brexit contention burning, as you know any too well over the Northern Ireland Protocol, which is um some genuine problems but mainly it's a lot of political grandstanding to maintain the idea of a constant war with those bloody Europeans and right. we can see you know even last night uh, Johnson continuing to play politics uh, over the cross-channel migration by publishing a letter to Macron which he suggested what he knew would be unacceptable and anywhere useless uh, of having british bobbies patrolling beaches of france and making sure the french police stop slacking so they're in a the complete hole and all they can do it seems is they this government which um you may have gathered I'm not a not totally supportive of. All they can do, it seems, is keep digging.
2: And one of the things that's contained in that letter is a request. Well, first of all, there are references to a conversation in June where Boris Johnson intimates that he had pointed out that there would be problems to Emmanuel Macron, and sadly, these things have come to pass because France didn't act in the way that the British government had advised, and to some degree, by taking (laughs) migrants back to disincentivise crossing the Channel. But there is no mechanism by which France can be compelled to take people back because the British government now no longer has any access to the mechanisms under the Dublin Convention which would require the first port of call for people seeking asylum that that they would return there rather than going somewhere else and trying to seek asylum.
0: You're quite right. One, one can't exaggerate the importance of this because to be honest even within the European community people who have successfully shipped unwanted migrants onto their neighbours are don't rush to to take them back. And even in the last year, I think, when the when we were able to avail ourselves as Britain of the Dublin Convention, we were able to return under that only some 300 migrants to other countries in Europe, which they had passed through. So I'm not sure that it makes a, a a vast practical difference, but it would have been a small help. And of course, that is no longer available to us. And the idea that France or the Netherlands or Belgium or any country in Europe would willingly negotiate an agreement with Britain whereby we could ship migrants back to them, whom who had clearly passed through their territory, it is simply laughable. I mean, why should they?
2: You mention as well that, just, that some of the climate created during the 2015 migrant influx might not actually make people too well disposed to heeding Britain's request because of Britain's insistence to take people directly from countries of origin rather than taking people from other European countries by way of distribution within the European Union.
0: We have not gone out of our way as members of the EU to help fellow members who, by reason of geography, were more exposed to the impact of this particularly difficult migration wave in 2015 and, and, of course, the steady flow that has been happening since. So we didn't win ourselves many friends. We adopted this strategy, as you say, of saying, well, the right way to handle this is to basically go to the source of the problem and we will take 20,000 Syrians, I think we said, from Lebanon and Jordan, essentially, adjacent to the the source of, of the problem. And that has been done. and um, the whole they i think they have been fairly well looked after and resettled in the uk and we've congratulated ourselves on that whilst you know we've had 20,000 over five years and the germans had one million over one year to find a way to manage so we've got no credit in europe from our past behavior as as members of the eu on taking a fair share of the of the migrated burden And to turn around and expect them to defend our borders for us when we've um, departed the EU on the basis that we'd do a better job of looking after that ourselves, we would be taking back control, is simply ludicrous. But indignation has been stoked here. The right-wing press is outraged at the idea of breaking into our country, of people breaking into our country and so forth. And even if the, um, the government were keen to lower the temperature on this issue. I just don't think it would be able to. It's just got to keep on with these absurd promises that they'll fix this and fix that and make the French do their jobs and all this sort of thing. I'm overwhelmed, actually, by the... Well, not overwhelmed, but I'm just surprised by the restraint of the French, whom I... Well, I I think I know from various contacts and conversations and so on. They're not annoyed by the British attitude. They're not tetchy, they're not irritated, they're incandescent about in relations with Britain at the moment. There have been all sorts of other problems, there Australian submarines and so on. And they're furious. And yet there they are, admittedly paid by the Brits to have the migration filter on the Eurostar and the Calais on French sovereign territory and allow us to do that. I mean, they could, it seems to me so easily just say, well, you know, if you want to look after your own borders, that's fine. But um, you do it in Dover. And we're not going to check who gets onto the Eurostar. Good luck sorting that out when the train arrives in Dover. We're not going to check who gets onto the ferries, who may or may not be packed into lorries. Good luck on sorting that out when the when the ferries debouch their cargo in, in Dover. And I suppose the French, you know, have a... A real interest in maintaining the flow of cross-channel trade because the goods trade is um, substantially in France's favour, the bilateral goods trade. So they, they they don't want to disrupt that trade really if they can avoid it. But if they did, it would be totally catastrophic from our point of view. We'd have you know the, our ability to to handle trains, ferries, and lorries arriving in the very geographically constrained periphery of Dover to conduct searches and. Documentation checks. There, it would completely gum up the main um, supply line of the country. Right. So we're we're actually surprisingly vulnerable.
2: So Tony, that point about the Dublin Convention, as you heard addressed by Nick Whitney there, and also the mention of Europol and Eurojust. There are several consequences, I suppose, in terms of European cooperation from as a result of Brexit that directly impact on. And a multilateral management of migration flows between the UK and Europe.
1: That's right. I mean, ju- even just taking the Dublin regulation itself, I mean, that's designed to, as I say, prevent asylum shopping around the EU. Now, of course, uh, it, it's it's often uh, and perhaps more often than not, it's criticised as, as not working because... Clearly, during the migration crisis of 2015, tens of thousands of migrants were coming into Greece and Italy, and neither country really had the resources to process all of them according to uh, the Dublin Regulation. So a lot of migrants were just being waved through, and those fingerprints weren't being taken, those um, asylum applications weren't being made, as they should have according to the Dublin Regulation. But at least it did provide a legal basis for something like that to happen. So not only could um, one member state you know, legally and safely return uh, a, a migrant or asylum seeker if, if there were not sufficient grounds for them to be in their country, it also facilitated family reunions uh, in, in a legally s- secure way. Um so it, it, there, there was, a, 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 I suppose, a double-edged aspect to, to the Dublin regulation. But now the UK is out of that. They're also out of Eurodac, so they don't have access to the fingerprinting database of uh, migrants who come into the European Union. They've also left the Schengen Information System, which uh, is a database uh, which allows uh, officials in terms of visas and migration policy at borders to decide whether someone should or shouldn't be allowed into the single uh, travel area of the Schengen area, which is, of course, a passport free system Now, the UK wasn't part of Schengen, nor is Ireland, but the UK lobbied very hard to be part of the Schengen database. And just as they were granted access to that database, of course, Brexit happened. So they've had to unplug from that uh, and that again is uh, a, a gap in their armour, uh, if you like. and. The UK now finds itself facing a migration flare-up once again, but very few legal tools to, to, to deal with it and to send people back to wherever they, they should be sent.
2: All of which leaves people who want to travel from France to the UK, albeit in irregular migration flows, leaves them trapped at Calais. The situation for those trapped in limbo at Calais as a result of all of this debacle is pretty grim.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a long-running problem in Calais, and it really goes back to the 1990s when the Channel Tunnel opened. Uh, By the end of the 90s, you had the Kosovo War, so you had Kosovar and Albanian uh, asylum seekers and uh, economic migrants, if you like. You had Iraqis coming as well, trying to get to the UK through the Channel Tunnel. Uh, Then you had a camp that was set up by the French Red Cross at, at Sangat, right next to Calais. Uh, and that in turn became a bit of a magnet for uh, for migrants and and irregular uh, people trying to get across to the UK so so that was shut down by the French government uh, under pressure from Tony Blair and then you had a treaty between France and Britain called the le touquet treaty which effectively pushed the British border onto French territory at Calais so it was envisaged that perhaps some... Asylum seekers could get their application processed on the French side of the channel uh, with British officials there. But again, th- that didn't really work out. There were more and more people coming to Calais and various impromptu shelters and sites were were springing up in the woods and on waste ground around Calais. There were two sites were shut down in 2009, but people kept coming Um And then in 2015, of course, you had uh, the big migration crisis in Europe where hundreds of thousands came from the Middle East and Africa. And a lot of them made their way to Calais once more. And you had a former holiday center, uh, outdoor holiday camp uh, was requisitioned. And that was turned into what became known as the jungle, which was a huge shanty town really designed for about 600 people. But in the end, 1800 Migrants were living there in fairly squalid conditions. But you also had this essentially this ecosystem of charities and NGOs coming over from the UK. You had kitchens were built and eventually the jungle for all its problems. And it was a very violent and downtrodden kind of place. There was a kind of an economy grew up there. At one point there were 400 salaries. Uh, coming into the, the camp. There there was, of course, trafficking and prostitution, uh, but there were restaurants and barbershops shops and mosques and churches and so on. But eventually, in turn, the, the jungle itself was d- dismantled in October 2016. And at that stage, the Channel Tunnel and the port around Calais were so well secured, as I mentioned before, that the only option left for migrants was to try and launch boats onto the channel from the beaches along the coast. The first attempt was by a group of Iranian men in 2018 uh, and that was seen as actually quite successful and so of course inevitably smugglers and criminal gangs get involved and it becomes a big thing and whereas last year people were using small inflatable boats this summer charity workers say that suddenly these large uh, semi-rigid inflatable Zodiac boats were appearing, they were all the same colour so it sounded like these actually had been bought in bulk from China and then criminal networks were mobilising uh, the launches of these boats along the, the the coastline around Calais and in fact in one night over a thousand people crossed the channel successfully using these boats so uh, in the meantime the I suppose the humanitarian situation for people around Calais, because the the jungle had been dismantled, and because, according to charities at least, the the police have instituted a hostile environment, uh, people being harassed, tents being um, confiscated, sleeping bags taken, and you know a even a fairly robust uh, policing approach to charities and food distribution all of that has created a climate whereby according to charities at least people living there feel they have little less to, left to lose they may as well risk their lives uh, because life is so miserable in the in the open air around Calais anyway so uh, I mean that that's the sort of perspective at least from uh, fr- from the charity and and NGO sector
2: right and uh, even as, as you say your people have looking for a higher quality in inflatable craft i think a french outdoor pursuits shop stopped selling canoes and kayaks and the like because people in their desperation were trying to buy up those single person craft as well but when you were in calais the craft that these people had tried to travel on didn't even originate in france so you're looking at international networks as part of the effort to get people across the channel into the uk
1: that's right. the 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 boat, the, this craft in particular, is believed to have been bought in Germany. Um, but because th- there last summer there suddenly appeared a huge number of these Zodiac semi-rigid inflatables, which were all the same color, led quite a few people to believe that this was actually, these were these were bought in bulk from China and then distributed through networks in Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium. And it looks like the the gangs in question are run along national lines. So you'd have uh, Kurdish gangs, you'd have uh, regular Iraqi gangs, uh, Sudanese gangs, for example. Um, So, you know, this is all a big problem, not just for France and the UK, but a problem for, for Europe in general. And, you know, we know that we have another migrant situation on the other side of Europe in Belarus. So once again... Migration t- has tended to become one of those issues that are very difficult uh, for Europe to deal with and simply aren't going away. And now it's been, uh, it, it's been brought into this ongoing Brexit-flavoured tension between the UK and France.
2: There is the other small matter of the formal Brexit talks, Tony, or the talks around the Northern Ireland Protocol, to be more accurate. Mara Shefcevic was in London today meeting his counterpart, David Frost. Not much to report,
1: No. um, Again, this is yet another week has has come and gone. What happens is that the technical teams on both sides uh, work together, either in Brussels or London. And then on the Friday, it goes up the line to the political level of David Frost and Mara Shevchevich. The European Union was very keen to get the medicines issue dealt with this week. Um to remind people, the protocol has caused real problems for the flow of medicines, including generic medicines from Great Britain to Northern Ireland. The EU seems very determined to, to fix this problem, and they're going to change their own legislation to ensure that medicines that are licensed in Great Britain, uh, for whatever reason and in whatever category of medicine, uh, even though they're licensed in Great Britain, which is outside the single market, they can still flow into Northern Ireland. Uh, we've talked about this before, but the EU has been very keen to get this sorted, and because the EU is changing its own legislation, it, it needs to have a co-decision procedure between the Commission, the European Council, uh, the Council of Ministers, rather, the Member States, and the European Parliament, and that, that takes time, even though it's going to be a, an accelerated procedure. So they wanted to get this done this week so that that would, law would be in place on the 1st of January, but it looks like they haven't got agreement this week. Um and the suspicion in Brussels, at least, is that David Frost tends to move the goalposts. He doesn't want to have one segment of the issue uh, fixed and then you create momentum towards other issues like customs and SPS and the governance issue. He wants everything done in a f- one grand agreement. Um So that, again, looks like things are being held up um, What I'm told is that on customs, again, there had been a bit of progress in recent weeks. The EU has moved over to the UK's idea that not everything going into Northern Ireland is at risk of crossing into the single market across the border. Uh, So therefore you can have a kind of a variegated approach to to risk. But the UK seems, from what I gather, to want to push the thing even further, closer to the UK command paper of the summer, which essentially says Traders should be responsible for deciding where the risk is uh, and uh, that you don't need to have any checks at all on goods going that are clearly going to Northern Ireland, only have checks for those goods that are going to the south. But uh, that seems to have got stuck in the weeds a little bit this week, as well as, of course, the uh, agri-food checks, which is always a very uh, tricky issue.
2: Right. And looking ahead to next week. Same again, same as it ever was. Same again,
1: yeah. (laughs) They may ask themselves, where is that beautiful agreement?
2: And they may ask themselves, where do these talks go to?
1: And they may ask themselves, am I right, am I wrong?
2: And they may ask themselves, my God, what have I done?